Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about our relationships with our bodies and issues at the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. A quick content warning up top for those who might need to avoid this one. We do talk about needles in this episode, if that's a problem for you. Usually, I try to cut my interviews down to about an hour, and if there's any more to our conversation that I want you to hear, I'll stick that in a bonus episode. But I talked to this week's guest for so long, I actually had to produce two full episodes. What a bummer. (laughs) You can listen to just one or both, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to them because we had a blast chatting. In this episode, we compare notes about living with chronic migraine and our attempts at managing the condition, migraine literacy among doctors we've seen, and regularly sticking needles in our heads because that is somehow preferable to the migraines. We also talk about New York's restrictive medical cannabis program, harm reduction and empathy, linguistic precision, and Kate's tea and empathy workshops. In the first episode, Kate talks about her experience in the Australian healthcare system while getting her master's in public health while down under. Her work as a freelance sex educator, including her recent West Coast teaching tour and founding Sex Geekdom, the stigma surrounding sexually transmitted infections and disclosure, tea and empathy, and the difficulty of making new friends as a grown-up. I also talk a little bit about violence in the introduction to that episode and all of the horrible things (laughs) that have happened recently. Um, Not, I don't talk about it as much as I would like to because my brain honestly just can't handle it right now but man what a world like i always say in my intro every person is different and that definitely applies to treatment for chronic migraine which we talk about in this episode everyone's going to have different triggers and symptoms and respond differently to different treatments we talk about some of our personal experience with that in this episode If you're able to find and see a headache specialist, they generally know more about the options that are available and how to wield them more effectively to help turn the volume down on your headaches. I've included a link to learn more about chronic migraine on the episode page, and there you can also search your zip code to find headache specialists in your area. There are unfortunately nowhere near enough of them, but that is thankfully beginning to change. I should also probably make a disclaimer that I talk about cannabis use for migraine pain in this episode. Again, it's not for everyone, and not everyone can use it or have access to it, and it's definitely not legal everywhere. In fact, federally in the United States, it's still very illegal, but different states have different laws. And like we talk about in this episode, unfortunately, those laws are applied unevenly to people of color. To learn more about the laws pertaining to cannabis use, possession, and distribution in your state, check out NORML, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, which I've linked to on the show page. They have great information on how these laws vary on a state-by-state basis and advocacy resources as well. Because language is often the first thing to get really difficult for me in these chronic migraine flares, I've been experimenting with migraine imagery using Snapchat and Instagram. I'm a visual artist first, but had gotten away from visual arting, and now I'm back. 
Uh, I started a separate Instagram account to log some of what I've been playing around with while up late with migraine insomnia and dread. <laughs> uh, check it out if you're interested at Bimps Gets Weird. I also share some on Snapchat uh, as in sickness pod. I want to take a moment to say thanks to my patrons over at Patreon for supporting the show on an ongoing basis. Stanford, Laura, and Katie, you guys rule. Uh, Special shout out to Yarrow for being the latest patron to join the party. Thank you, Yarrow. Patreon enables me to accept small recurring donations on a per episode basis to help with the production costs for the podcast. If you haven't yet, check us out over on Patreon. There are different pledge levels that come with different rewards and patrons who support the podcast also get access to the patron only feed on which I'll be sharing some more behind the scenes stuff in months to come. Check out insicknesspod.com slash donate for links to our Patreon and PayPal pages, including a video in which I describe exactly how Patreon works. Don't worry, if you can't donate, the chronic life is very expensive and I totally get it. You can also help out by taking a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, which helps other people find the show. And I'm always looking... And I am also always looking for folks to help me transcribe my interviews, but I am hoping to raise enough money at some point through Patreon to be able to pay for transcription so I can make full transcripts available in a more timely fashion. Uh, As you may have noticed, it takes me a while. If you're listening to these episodes the week that they come out and are or can be in the New York area, Kate will be hosting another Tea and Empathy workshop next Tuesday, July 19th at Shag Brooklyn. This workshop will focus on communicating better in your relationships and will be co-hosted by Kate's professional soulmate, Louise Boucher. You'll hear us talk about their adventures and tea and empathy in these episodes. Check out the episode page for links to some of the stuff we talk about in this episode and a link to that upcoming Tea and Empathy workshop in Brooklyn. You can find resources and more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. Find Kate and all of her workshops, including Tea and Empathy, online at KateMcCombs.com. Check out Sex Geekdom at SexGeekdom.com and find Kate on Twitter at KateCom and on Instagram at KateAnswers. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I have chronic migraines and they are currently well-managed, which has been a pretty recent development. Um, but they, for me, they started about two years ago. They sort of, I went from, as I mentioned earlier, like having two to three migraines a month to having a migraine pretty much every day and having them be much more severe and obviously completely debilitating. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty, it's still, it still involves a tremendous amount of energy. I think I'm sure many of your listeners, and I know you connect with this idea that it's just, even when things are relatively well managed, it's so fatiguing to do all the management. It's like Mm -hmm. fatiguing to be in pain and it's fatiguing to manage pain. Yeah. I think I said to my therapist recently, some people have children. I have a body. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And people often don't realize how much is involved. Oh, of course not. Yeah. How, how could you possibly? Right. And I think it's, it's always, it's been interesting for me the the several times where I've had a friend stay with me for several days, they nearly always will make the observation. I had no idea how much you were doing to manage your migraines. Yeah. Just no idea. Yeah. I mean, if I spend more than five hours with someone, like things get weird because I'm like, well, now I have to do this other weird thing. And it's just like this long succession of strange, like habits and things that I need to manage very closely. And I mean, just the amount of liquid that I consume in a day. Um, Was that, I I mean, you said that like the migraines weren't as much of a problem for you when you were traveling, but have you, traveling with normal people stresses me out so 
much because they want to go out, they want to do all of these things. And like, for me, I just have to take every possible moment to like rest Mm -hmm. and manage my body. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something that you've run into? Uh, not so much because the people I choose to travel with are highly empathic on the same page as me sort of people. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty clear about travel compatibility being a next level of friendship than just like hangout compatibility. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was traveling with Louise in California, Louise just totally fucking gets it. And even though she doesn't experience chronic health issues, she's highly empathetic and highly flexible. Like she's really good with, yeah. And she's really understanding about, okay, I need to stop and get beverages in my system all the time and then have to go to the bathroom all the time. Um, and she's just like, yeah, cool, whatever. Totally cool with it. Um, I think for what I've just noticed when traveling, especially, but also in life in general is that I, I experience better outcomes with, within my relationships when I can anticipate my needs Mm -hmm. far enough in advance that I articulate them in a way that makes them easier to meet. Yeah. Um, and Louise is actually fantastic at this too, because since, you know, I've got my own stuff going on, um, and we all do, like knowing what other people need of me with like a little bit of a flexible boundary is really, really helpful to keeping everyone happy. Yeah. So she'd be like, I'm going to need a bathroom in about 20 minutes. And I'm like driving the car like, okay, so I don't have to pull over right now, mm-hmm. but you know, within the next, you know, several exits, like I'll find a convenient bathroom to stop at that will bring us both ease. And then we have harmony and it's fabulous. This is what it's like traveling with my husband or any of my family members or other friends I travel with. They just are good about articulating their needs as well as hearing mine. Right. And not having the conversation when you're already naked. Right. Right. Yeah. Don't have, yeah. Don't have high stakes conversations when you're naked. (laughs) Or I mean that like in, in the moment when it like matters, you know, not necessarily nude. I mean, once in a while, like, you know, I'll have a need that sneaks up on me. Right. right? And it it becomes a much more urgent thing. But I think making it a habit Mm -hmm. to know my patterns, know what I need, like, and, and that process can be exhausting, but it's in the long run, I find that my needs are much easier for other people to meet and for me to meet, um, autonomously as well. Yeah. And, and also to not have any confusion about expectations or, Oh, they like ruminating on like, Oh, they probably think this about me because I didn't want to go to this thing with them. And they probably think that I'm just being cranky or, or whatever. Like if, if you've negotiated that and you've communicated that ahead of time, it saves you all the energy of, of like, well, she didn't, and me, 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 me. Yeah, I don't have a lot of me, me, me in my life. It's so wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I try to have as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's part of having adult friendships is, is, um, I meet a lot of people who are my age, like in their early 30s, that have had a recent sort of friendship audit, mm-hmm. recognizing that, um, that friendships that they made in their early 20s or earlier in life don't necessarily fit them now. Like when you're in college and your idea of fun is getting drunk at some party and, or you have some class together that is part of your identity then, but isn't now you might find yourselves doing adulthood really differently. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that can be really difficult to have those sorts of friendship fade outs or friendship breakups. Yeah, definitely. And I think especially if you have health issues, like that gets forced on you. Yeah. Whether you, whether you want to do that audit or not. Yeah. I think, and I, and I, I think that I actively seek out people who are highly understanding. Um, but I think also a lot of people who are not as understanding have sort of self-selected out of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been relatively drama free. Um, I think it's just if people can't hang with that, they don't really want to spend time with me. Right. Yeah. I've, I've experienced the same thing. Do you want to talk about treatment at all? Sure. Okay. Um, so we, we both have gotten Botox. I can't get it anymore, which oh, is a bummer. Why can't you get Botox anymore? Cause I switched to Medicaid. Oh fuck. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not on the formulary, so I'm assuming yeah. it won't be covered under any circumstances. And because I've been in the process of applying for disability, like I just don't have the emotional energy required yeah. to go see a new doctor and yeah. like jump through all the hoops to eat find out if it will be covered at all. Um, I'm still going to do that eventually because it was, it wasn't a cure, but it was effective enough that it's like worth worth it it to see if I can continue getting it. Um, I combed through 
11 pages worth of in-network neurologists and narrowed it down to about 14. Um, I think that just highlights too, just how much effort mm-hmm. and how exhausting it to be can be to just navigate one small piece of the puzzle of managing your health. Oh, absolutely. Like I got, I got kind of lucky. Like it, it was a roundabout way that I found my neurologist that I really love. Um, but I had been seeing another neurologist who wasn't like a horrible person or something. I just didn't really connect with him. Mm -hmm. Um, and then through like a chain of referrals, I ended up being referred to this woman who I absolutely adore and who's highly empathetic and like actually gets me. And it's amazing. Uh, I've seen a lot of neurologists cause I've been dealing with migraines and really chronic migraines since I was like migraines since I was about seven. And then I, I'd say like when I went through puberty was when they became chronic. Yeah. Um, and so I've seen a lot of neurologists and more than any other specialty that I've seen, I think that the majority of people who self-select into neurology would maybe be better off in a specialty that doesn't involve live humans. Right. <laughs> that yeah. is super distressing. Yeah. They're interesting people. It's not their fault. I mean, they, they're in a specialty that like, we have no idea what's going on up there, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but a lot of them just really aren't great with alive human beings. Right. Right. Um, like the, the most traumatizing experience that I had in a office visit was, was with a new neurologist that I tried seeing. And so going in, I mean, going into any new doctor appointment is highly stressful for me because of, you know, my history I mean, just trying to communicate my history is really difficult. Um, Because it's not a short thing. Like, that's a, it's an emotional understatement of the year. Yeah. I mean, it's an emotionally complex, lengthy, and just fucking complicated. And, like, you know, I have like multiple conditions that most doctors even have never heard of. So it's, it's, uh, I'm not looking forward to that. And I've really been putting, putting off. I mean, I definitely need to see a new neurologist if not for the Botox. Like I have to do something because the migraines are just out of control. I mean, today, last few days I've had like the longest break I've had in months and it's been three days. Um, Sometimes that can be emotionally weird to have those breaks. Like it can be that uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop experience. Yeah. And, and it, it can also be this sort of sadness of, Oh God, like the longing for it to be like that, mm-hmm. um, more often. Right. So even when you're having a good day, it can be fraught with other emotions. Oh, so many, so much fraughtness. Yeah. Um, and my brain does this weird thing where like, if I ha- like on a good day, I'll be like, Oh, I'll just be like this forever. And I'll make all of these plans. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, like I don't so much that so much that I mean, I, I'm, I'm experiencing for the last several weeks, because of this combination of treatments that I'm currently on, I've had the best period of wellness that I've had in quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I have to be very mindful of not overbooking myself because I still can get triggered quite mm-hmm. easily. I still need to be super mindful of my hydration and my sleep and my stress level and what foods I'm eating and all of that. Um, so I'm, I'm having to be super conscientious about not overbooking myself just because yeah. I've been better. Yeah. Like, better does not mean well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what, I mean, part of it is just like, oh, I'm feeling okay. So I should, I need to cram in as much as possible, but there's just something that like my brain forgets how terrible things can be. Cause even, even on a good day, like I still feel like shit, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's hard for me to like think about the future and think about Cause I'll say, I never know. Mine, mine are like just all over. Like we were saying before we started recording that like I tried tracking my, I mean, I definitely have triggers. I was able to identify specific things that are triggers, but when it comes down to it, sometimes I just get a fucking migraine for no fucking reason, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, so it's, it's just hard to plan in any way. And then, so if I, do have a few days where I'm feeling okay. I'm like, Oh, it'll just be like this forever and make all of these plans and then have to cancel all of them. Yeah. And I've, I don't know about you. I find canceling plans quite stressful. I used to, 
Can now that I've, I've done it enough, yeah. I've had enough practice. I find it less stressful than I did at the beginning, but it's still something that I have to think about, you know, when I'm scheduling myself, like, mm-hmm. is this going to be really stressful if I have to cancel it? Right. And what support do I need around making this a more likely scenario that I'll be able to make it? Yeah. And it depends on what it is and who it is and, and that sort of thing. Um, if I've already canceled on somebody mm-hmm. more than once, or if I've even just once before I start feeling really guilty. Um, but I actually won a job that I had at some point was an assistant to this guy who fucking canceled meetings constantly. So that was actually kind of like good practice at diplomatically rescheduling. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, he was ridiculous. Like it got to the point where I was like, you requested this meeting and you, (laughs) you rescheduled it on this woman eight times. What's wrong with you? You know, but whatever. That but was it gave you some permission that that's it's like, hey, if that's acceptable in the corporate world, maybe me canceling twice on someone is not that big a deal. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that job was good practice for a lot of things. Um, when you tell people about your treatments, like what kind of reactions do you get? <laughs> um, I, when people find out the sheer number of needles that I get put <laughs> into my body on a regular basis, I usually get a jaw drop yeah. response. Um, I love when people tell me how badass I am. I really enjoy that. I find that very affirming. I posted on social media the the fluoroscopy image of when I got radiofrequency nerve ablations and in your neck. In my neck. Um, like big fucking fat needles in my neck killing my nerves with fire. <laughs> Which is unpleasant as it sounds. Um and uh, so I, I posted those pictures and the, the reactions that I got for people were just kind of along the lines of, wow, that's amazing. Geez, I really hope this helps you because that looks really intense. <laughs> and it has helped really considerably. I think it's sometimes I think of treating my migraines and managing my migraines are, are like managing a lot of different dials. Yes, I, I, yeah. I use that analogy a lot with my therapist and I'm like imagine like a big soundboard and there's dials and those little lever things lever things and the um sliders and Mm -hmm. stuff like that yeah that's exactly what it feels like so it feels like the nerve ablations are a significant dial they seem to make a really big difference there's something about the nerves in my neck really triggering my trigeminal nerve Mm -hmm. um and they've reduced the frequency of my migraines really considerably so there's the the nerve ablation dial, and then there's the Botox dial and the Botox frequency dial. Like we learned that I really need the Botox every 10 weeks rather than the standard 12 weeks. Uh-huh. Cause when it starts to wear off, it starts to another kind of migraine cycle that's yep. unpleasant. Um, so and it can take like a couple weeks for the Botox to really like do its in. thing. Yeah, totally. So the 10 week thing was really huge, that, but that took us quite a while to figure out that that was necessary. Yeah. Did you have to like alter the pattern in any way? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. I think it was just, let's, it was just sort of a, let's see if we do this slightly more frequently. Let's see if your insurance will cover that. Yeah. And then see how that works. And it's made a big difference. That's awesome. We had to like, because I have so many neck problems, had to play around with the placement, um, on my neck and at the like craniocervical junction where your head mm-hmm. meets your neck. Um, cause we found that like, if we don't inject my, like if we inject too much into my neck, my head feels like it's going to fall off for three mm-hmm. months, which is not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't inject my neck at all, it's like I didn't get Botox at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to play around a little bit with the placement and also like the amount that he would use on my neck specifically, which was interesting. Interesting. And God, this trial and error shit is really exhausting. It's <laughs> absolute bullshit. It is absolute bullshit. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like there's anything that anyone can do differently. No. Like, it's just a thing that yeah. has to happen. But it's, it's yeah. just... And, and for so many people, so many insurance companies require step therapy prior to yes. approving Botox. Yeah. So you have to already have tried and failed several medications. And so many of those medications, they're seizure drugs, they're antidepressants that take several months to figure out yeah. if they're working at all. Yeah. Um, which is just such a frustrating nightmare. I, I, if I do get approved for Botox again, the good news is I'm already like, you usually need to try at least three out of four things. And those four things are, um, tricyclic antidepressant, uh, a seizure drug, 
a beta blocker like propranolol and triptans. Mm-hmm. And I already have prescriptions for three out of those four things. Right. So that definitely expedited the process yeah. the last time and you know, we'll see. But, um, uh, when I would tell people about Botox, they'd be like, doesn't it hurt having needles stuck in your head? <laughs> Clearly you've never lived with chronic migraine. Right. Right. I mean the, what I found the, the first couple times I got Botox, I found it really confronting to just have that many needles in my face. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly I was saying it because it was being given to me by a neurologist that I didn't particularly connect with that feels highly vulnerable yeah. to have 50 injections in your head. Yeah. I was, really, ex- I, I mean, compared to the pain of yes. what I experience on a regular, yeah, it's like, meh, whatever. Yeah. Like this morning, I, one of the other things I get are nerve blocks, mm-hmm. um, just with with like lidocaine and they're the, I get these trigger point injections on my shoulders cause I get this peripheral shoulder pain from my migraine coat hanger pain, coat hanger pain precisely. Yeah. And these injections really, really help a lot. Um, but it's just, I've become so not fussed about needles and I have preferences about how I like them. Like the ones that are right around my eyebrows, those can hurt a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a strong preference for sitting in a high back chair so that I can put my head back mm-hmm. Um, when, when she does those and she's happy to accommodate that. And my neurologist has actually said that she's started offering that to other patients as a thing that makes it just a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. But I, you know, I went straight from getting probably 20 injections in my face and head and neck and shoulders straight to another interview that I was doing. You know, it's just, it's how much it, Whereas I think for most people, if they got that number of injections in a day, it would be overwhelming and distressing. (laughs) I need to go home now. I need to go home. Yeah. Yeah. What are some like unexpected symptoms? Like, like what are some symptoms that you have when your chronic migraines are flaring that most people wouldn't associate with having a migraine? I love this question. It's so empathetic because I think only somebody, only somebody else like really engaged with the experience would ask that. Um, one of the things that I find myself needing to explain to people that's slightly confusing, this doesn't happen very often because I live in New York and I don't have a car, but I find it totally sensorily overwhelming to have the radio on when someone's trying to talk to me. Oh my God, me too. Like when I'm at any stage of migraine, like pre-drome, actual migraining or post-drome, which I'm basically in a state of Constantly. almost all the time. <laughs> so I find that just totally overwhelming in a way that's confusing for people. Um, I have that problem, like, with background noise in yeah. general. I have a really – my brain has a really hard time isolating the person speaking. Yeah. Which is why I made that comment about being at a bar before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, any loud bars or restaurants, I can't hang yeah. with at all. Any sort of, like, TGI Fridays, anything that has too much on the wall, yeah, I that's cannot handle it. I find that less enjoyable, too. Like, um, I don't like restaurants with TVs on, mm-hmm. and that's – that's more about the light yeah. and just the sensory overload. Like I, I, I live in New York city. There's enough sensory overload yeah. here. You know, I think any, any kind of m- more easeful environment mm-hmm. I find really helpful. Yeah. That's part of the reason I live in the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. I can understand that. I'm trying to think of what other symptoms I get that. So, so much of it is also normal to me. I'm trying to think of what resonates as <laughs> weird to other people. Um, Hmm. Um, I think sometimes what's hard to explain to people is what does and does not kind of suck up my bandwidth. Like I was thinking about something you said to me previously about how you can kind of sit in the dark and have your phone on low brightness and just kind of look at Twitter. Yeah. But only that. But only that. Yeah. With one eye open. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, I've, I've struggled with screens a lot and explaining that. I mean, people, when they understand that light can trigger migraines and make migraines worse, then they sort of get, oh, okay, I can see why the screen thing would be hard. One thing that's helped that a lot are the Theraspects, the mm-hmm. migraine glasses. That's really helped increase my bandwidth for screen time. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed somebody the other day who uh, had a traumatic brain injury, and she referred to it as screen sensitivity. Mm. I was like, oh, that's the perfect term. That's a great term. I love, yeah. I love linguistic precision in all things. Oh, my God. I can't believe we didn't talk about this yet. <laughs> It's so powerful to have a name for shit, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Yes. Um, Screen sensitivity. I love that. So we're going to circle back to linguistic precision because yeah. I love 
everything that you've done with that. Um, any other like weird migraine stuff? Uh, weird migraine stuff. Hmm. No, I think most of, most of my migraine stuff is pretty typical. Like whenever I'm explaining, whenever I've had an experience of going to a new doctor to explain my migraine stuff or have had to go to the emergency room and they ask me about my symptoms, that's all very typical uh-huh. sensitivity to light, nausea. Yeah. Like how, um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this other than the headache specialist. I don't know if you've seen more than one, um, that you've seen, how has, how have you found migraine literacy among other practitioners? Mm. I've experienced it to be pretty good. Like, um, my gynecologist understands quite a bit about migraines and is, um, really awesome about, uh, being sensitive to it and turning down the light. Like my last pap smear. I I know. I had a, I recently had a transvaginal ultrasound oh. where they like turned down the lights and like Paul Simon was on and I was like, yeah, I can get into this. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. Oh man. That makes all the difference when you have somebody mm-hmm. sensitive doing an exam like that. But yeah, I'd, I'd scheduled this appointment quite, quite a bit far in advance for this pap smear and I had a migraine and it was pretty bad, but not bad enough that I couldn't make it. Like I had to cab there, but it was, it was fine. And so I had these big sunglasses and I said, you know, I'm not trying to be cool. I just have a migraine. And she's like, Oh, I'll turn off the light. And she just had her little, Mm -hmm. you know, her little light to do my, to be my pap spirit. It was great. And she was super supportive. And, um, you know, she, she had tested me for some, uh, it had occurred to her to test for some genetic thing that can be related to migraines and, um, I wonder what it was. Yeah, it was the, I'm trying to remember what it was called. It's a gene that affects how your body absorbs folic acid and MTHFR. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. The motherfucker gene. The motherfucker gene. That's totally what I think too. <laughs> uh, I actually, I test positive. Like it's so complicated. And we still know so little about yeah. it and like what there's it means. Of, it seems like there's a lot of bullshit on the internet about it too. Oh my God. There's so much bullshit. Cause I tested, I tested yeah, positive for one of them and there's, so you have two copies and then within that there's like two, uh, my genetics uh, knowledge is, has just immediately evaporated as soon as I started to talk about this, but there's like two different ones. And then like within either one, there's like two things. And I, I tested positive for one in one of mm. them. And it's the the one that like, we, we don't know what it means. And there's yeah. like, we don't, you could spend all of this money buying these like super expensive supplements and like all of this stuff. And like, I take enough fucking pills as it yeah, is. Yeah. So I just have decided to ignore it. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So I, I tested positive for it as well. And I also tested, that my folic acid was deficient despite taking vitamins on a regular basis. It just wasn't the folic acid wasn't in a form that I guess my body can digest it. Right. So there's, there's some vitamin that I have that's not grossly expensive that has corrected that. Um, it, I don't think it's made a huge difference in my migraines at all, but I'm glad that my, I don't have some vitamin deficiency that I didn't know about. And if you wind up wanting to have kids, folic acid is like an important thing to be in place. Absolutely. So my public health brain is very conscious of that. So I was, (laughs) I was pleased to have that, um, have that addressed at least. But I thought in terms of migraine literacy, it seemed like she was, you know, aware of this as a thing and how this could be connected to, you know, gynecological health as well. Um, so I found, um, I've had relatively positive experiences but then, you know, for example, I, I had to, one less positive experience, I went to an emergency room once with just a, a, a horrible, horrendous migraine, and which you understand, like, how your regular migraines are horrendous, yeah. like, what would actually, what it would take to go, it would be better for me to go sit in an ER waiting room right. than it would be to deal with this. Yeah, because... There's literally, like, if you ask me, what is the worst possible place that you could go with a yeah. migraine, it would be an emergency room waiting yeah. room. I've actually, I've never gone to the ER for a migraine, so I'm always curious, like, what gets people there. Yeah, this was, this was like I'd been throwing up for 24 hours. Yep, that's um, a reason to go. Yeah, um, and the doctor was nice, like, he wasn't a dick to me or anything mm-hmm. like that, but his, I, I'm in the ER, and the thing he offers me is IV Tylenol. Like, if, if I had had more spoons, he would have gotten so much side-eye. I'm like, sure, just 
give it to me. This did nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it didn't make oh even God. the slightest bit of difference. Yeah. And then he realized that and gave me something stronger, which was actually helpful. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that wasn't, that wasn't, you know, a gross example of mistreatment or something like that. It was just an example of, do you have any idea how much fucking pain I'm in to be here? Like Tylenol? Really? <laughs> really, bro? <laughs> really, bro? Yeah. Well, the, the reason that I asked that is because, um, you know, we think, uh, and sir, I've had plenty of doctors that think of uh, medical knowledge as um, static and mm-hmm. unchanging. But when it comes to migraines, uh, our definitions of them, our treatment protocols and stuff like that is constantly evolving. Um, when I started experiencing chronic migraines as a child, the diagnosis of chronic migraine didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist until like, I want to say 2007. It might've been earlier than that. Um, It must've been earlier than that. Recent, fairly recent. Um, So I have seen a lot of doctors who have not updated their, their knowledge of migraines since they were in medical school. And um, I went to urgent care once, um, which during a period of time where I just wasn't seeing doctors because I just was like, I can't, I can't do it, but I, you know, I had a migraine for two weeks and I just need, like, I, I couldn't handle it anymore. Right. And he told me that it couldn't possibly be a migraine because I had had it for too long. He told me (laughs) it couldn't possibly be a migraine. I'm sorry for laughing at your pain. Oh no, no, I get it. I'm more laughing at his ignorance. Right. Exactly. Uh, it couldn't possibly be a migraine because uh, it wasn't unilateral because I had it on both sides of my head. And he was like, then it's not a migraine, which is total fucking bullshit. But that was something that they were taught until very recently. I remember I've read that in multiple places that, I mean, even that the etymology of migraine is Mm -hmm. about something like about it being cited. But I, I generally don't experience my migraines being cited either. Once in a while, there'll be one that's more one side than the other, but it's certainly not the norm yeah. for me. Yeah. And, and certainly not the length of time. Like I had an eight week migraine last year. <laughs> Wait, I call it migraine ocalypse. Oh no. <laughs> oh, I think you told me about that, that you went home and your husband was just driving you around in the car. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to stay with my parents cause I was just so completely disabled with it. Yeah. Um, and which was, I'm totally grateful that they were able to do that. And my husband would just come visit me occasionally hang out with me being in pain. And, um, that was, that was a literally dark period of my life, like blackout (laughs) curtains. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How is flying, like flying with it? You know, it's one of the things I'm so grateful for flying doesn't seem to really make things worse. Um, I mean the, the, the way I was able to get on a plane with that was, you know, my neurologist prescribing me a good dose of opiates Mm -hmm. and my parents don't live that far away. It's like a two hour plane flight. Um, and my husband took me to the airport and then I got through security on my own, got on the plane and then my parents were right there as soon as I exited. So it was relatively little that I had to manage on my own. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, even like there is no official ER treatment protocol for migraine. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. There's no standardization. I mean, a lot of times you'll get IV Benadryl. That's a, that's a yeah, big one. I've had that before. Um, Toradol. That's another one, but there's no, like if you are presenting with severe long lasting migraine in the ER, there's no standard. standardization whatsoever. That reflects my experience. Cause I've been offered I've, I've been to the ER twice for migraines and been to urgent care several times and at urgent care, it tends to be Toradol. Mm-hmm. Um, one urgent care place I went to gave me Demerol, which just was like really intense. And <laughs> okay. Thanks. It took, took care of the migraine, but then made me feel kind of fucked up for quite yeah. a while after that. Now I actually, um, I've been trained to give myself my own Toradol injections, mm-hmm. which is really, that's really helpful when the triptans don't work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the urgent care doctor that, that told me I couldn't possibly be having a migraine gave me barbiturates, which are pretty effective, <laughs> but <laughs> they actually specifically, advi- like the migraine foundations and stuff, like specifically advise against barbiturate use because of rebound headaches, yeah, which a, a lot of different yeah. medications can cause and are one of the reasons that like, I mean, growing up my whole life, I just didn't take medication for migraines because I was told like, 
you know, this is just something that you're going to have to live with. And I had migraine constantly. So like constantly taking Advil, which wouldn't touch it anyway. I was like, I don't want to damage my Self, liver and yeah. kidneys and stuff in the, in the meantime. Um, so I, I'm very much in the habit of like not taking things for migraine. Cause I also react so terribly to triptans. Mm. Um, like they just make me feel stupid. Stupid as all get out. Like, I cannot even function as a normal, like, human. And, like, all of the, the symptoms that I get with a migraine, like, it, the headache might not be there or it might be less than it would otherwise be, but all of the other symptoms are. And that just drives me nuts. I'm like, why am I taking this medication? Mm. Um, the last one that I tried was one of the nose sprays, mm. and that ended terribly. I got a rebound headache almost immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. How endlessly frustrating, because that's so the... I, I feel like doctors almost get excited about triptans, because oh it's like a God. relatively new medication that yeah. works for so many people. Yeah. And I, I mean, they work for me for the um, a good chunk of my migraines. But it, it does seem like sometimes there's a, but we have this migraine drug, and it's yeah. so much better for you than you know these opiates or other things that are more likely right. to cause rebound headaches. Yeah, my, my neurologist was so excited. He yeah. was like, I got these new samples. They're nose sprays. Let's try it out. And I was like, okay. And I used it in the office. Yeah. And I got in the car to go home, and it was like whap, yeah. right in the face. I got it. Like no, no relief, just yeah. immediate rebound. I think. Ugh. So I just take like prophylactic stuff, and I use cannabis, yeah. which helps a lot. And uh, I'm very frustrated that we don't have more of a medical cannabis program in our yeah. state. Yeah. Do you know why that is in New York? I do. I. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, so there's a few reasons. Uh, we only just got a program this January was wow. when it started. Our uh, governor, Cuomo, uh, has a like some weird personal vendetta against cannabis. And so he was actually the major roadblock to us having a program at all for several years. Um, he also, they passed the law and then he uh, like amended the law specifically with certain provisions like um, no smuggable forms of the plant are available and like a few other weird. Um, and it's, it's only for people with really severe, like dying of something yeah. conditions, right? Yeah. It's extremely restrictive to um, a small handful of conditions, mostly terminal cancer, kids with intractable epilepsy, um, severe chronic pain is not one of the indications, which is total fucking bullshit. That is really fucking bullshit. <laughs> I mean, especially at a time where access to opioids and stuff are being yeah, rolled back and right. not just opioids, but even like muscle relaxers, yeah. other yeah. stuff that is used to treat chronic pain, access to that is being rolled back and we're not getting access expanded in other arenas, which I find really frustrating. Are there any states near New York that have robust yeah. cannabis programs? I think um, Connecticut has a pretty robust program. New Jersey has a program, but it's also terrible also because of their governor. Thank you, Chris Christie. <laughs> um, I mean, for, for a long time in New Jersey, I don't think this is still true, but in New Jersey, you could only get smokable forms of the plant. Oh, weird. So it was really weird that like New York, you couldn't, no smokable forms yeah. in New Jersey, only smokable forms. Um, but this is a problem both in New York and New Jersey. There are very few dispensaries. Uh, there are very few doctors that are licensed to prescribe it. And in New York, there's no like central database of those doctors. So you like, there's no way to find them. You wow. just have to like find them by accident or through word of mouth. So, it seems almost anachronistic. Like when all these other states have. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for for a drug that's literally safer than Tylenol. Yeah. You know? Um, and so... What did I say before that? Drug safer than Tylenol. Before Different that. states. Chris Christie. Let's see. Chris Christie just makes me irrationally angry. I forget everything I was <laughs> talking like about. It just clouds your brain with yeah. rage. I'm originally from New Jersey, and I, I don't appreciate what he's doing to my state. Yeah, fair enough. Um... It was interesting being out in California and, you know, I met some people who are managing their pain really yeah. successfully with, oh, no, I remember what I was saying. Okay. With, um, yeah. with CBD. Yeah. Like that doesn't even necessarily make you high. Mm -hmm. It just treats your pain. Yeah. And it seems totally bananas to me it that is. that's not available to people. It is absolutely bananas. Um, 
hemp-derived CBD is actually legal nationally. Really? Um, I'm, you know, I'm unclear of the exact details and, like, how effective it is and that sort of thing. But also, I mean, the issue with CBD, like, it definitely shows a lot of promise, but... I think one of the reasons that cannabis is so effective is that there are hundreds of cannabinoids mm-hmm. that work in concert with each other mm-hmm. to provide certain benefits. Mm-hmm. So isolating just one compound is like maybe not the best way to go about it, but like whatever. Um, only five growers in the state of New York are licensed. Whoa. So between the extremely limited growers and producers and the extremely limited dispensary. I mean, the state government has essentially set up a drug cartel, wow. which I find really frustrating because as far as like capitalism and competition and, and like, you know, certainly has its drawbacks, but at the same time, I mean, you look at what's going on in states like Colorado and California mm-hmm. and it's like, Oh my fucking God. Like it's, they're light years ahead. They have, I mean, so many options. There's weed lube. Did you get any weed lube when you were in California? <laughs> no. I've heard really good things about it, though. I know. Um, I know people who have said that it really helps with menstrual cramps. Yes. And vulvodynia as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they have, like, different muscle rubs. There's beverages. There's there's vape pens. Like, gummies. Gummies. All sorts of edibles. It's absolutely unbelievable. And here in New York, like... It depends on where in the state you are and who you know, basically, mm-hmm. as far as, like, you, we definitely can get access to cannabis, um, but we're limited to whatever we manage to get, mm-hmm. um, which is really frustrating for somebody who has a number of health problems right. because, um, you know, we get different strains and sometimes they're really great for pain and sometimes they do nothing for pain right. and sometimes they aggravate my tachycardia and... You know, if I was able to go to a place that would consistently have several different types and several different ways to consume it, um, that would be really helpful. And I, we don't have access to that. And that's just so frustrating because millions of people are suffering. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with huge rates of addictions and like that is a completely separate can of worms that I have talked about in other episodes Mm -hmm. and uh there's nothing wrong with taking opioids if you need them but like they're hard to get and even if when if and when you do get them you're treated like a drug addict when you go to fill your prescription it's just so many things that like just make it absolute bananas that like a drug that is literally safer than Tylenol. You take too much Tylenol, just like a little bit too much, and you can die. Yeah. No one has ever died from cannabis. Yeah. What yeah. the fuck, man? <laughs> Serious what the fuck? Serious what the fuck? I, I get, like, really enraged and indignant about it. And I, I am concerned about what will happen in November with the next election. Um <laughs> For a number of reasons. You and me both, sister. Everyone's a little worried uh, for a number of reasons. But specifically in regards to cannabis, we have come so fucking far. I mean, I think about my freshman year of college and like watching weeds in my friend's dorm room. And like, that was like 10, 11 years ago. And just how much has changed in that period of time. The fact that it's recreational use is legal in multiple states is just mind-boggling you know but then in other states like new york which most people think of is very progressive and you know it's the dark it's the dark ages and even in states where it is legal even for recreational use you know i think a lot of people who are pro legalization kind of see it as a panacea that it's going to solve all of our problems it's going to solve medical problems it's going to solve criminal justice issue financial problems financial problems and like yeah, but we have a hundred years of bad drug policy preceding this. And, you know, flipping a switch, making pot legal is not going to, you know, like the prison industrial complex right. still exists. Um, have you read Chasing the Scream? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a great book about empathy as well. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's a pretty profound read when you look through it through that lens. Yeah. Also, uh, Dr. Carl Hart. Uh, He wrote a book called High Price, and it's like a memoir. He's a neuroscience uh, 
professor at Columbia mm-hmm. who studies addiction and, and drug use and all that stuff. And it's a memoir about him growing up um, in a neighborhood in Miami that was really deeply affected by drugs and deciding that he wanted to study this and kind of him going from this mindset of like, oh, drugs are terrible and they're the source of all of our problems to realizing that like, we should probably just legalize all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so his, his progression is really interesting and another case study in interesting empathy. Um, but, you know, in states, even where it is legal, people of color are still getting arrested. Right. I've been reading about that in Colorado, like the, cause it's still, even though it's legal for recreational use, it's only for over, over 21 year olds uh-huh. and, and young young men of color being right. arrested at a much higher rate than young yeah. white men. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, here in New York City where it, it, it in in New York at least it is decriminalized, which is why I feel okay talking about it talking about yeah. using it publicly. Um but even here in New York in New York City where the city government has stated like we're going to stop going after this, young men of color are still targeted and arrested for this mm-hmm. stuff. So it's not the panacea. You know, we still have a lot of problems. Um, but I worry about changing tides. And we ca- we actually came really close to legalizing marijuana in the 1970s. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, we were very, very close. And then the pendulum swung in the other direction. And I, I think that now there's, like, too much money involved and too many business interests in um, pro-legalization that, like, will hopefully prevent that from happening. But the wrong people wind up getting elected, that pendulum can swing again. It's easy to work up a lot of fear, I think, in people's minds about drugs of any sort. And- oh, absolutely. Because we have been li- flat out lied yeah. to for generations yeah. about this stuff. And um, Yeah, I think that's so interesting just about the the way drug education works and there's a lot of overlap with sex education. It's, oh, absolutely, it's yeah. all the focus tends to be all about fear mongering. And we know that, um, you know, we know that that's not effective. Like dare has been evaluated so many times as being completely useless. Mm-hmm. And as I understand, it's like still being done. Is it really? I don't know. I like, I've, I've, I've heard that at least in some places it's still being done. Yeah. And just has no evidence base behind it whatsoever. Right. Like, nor does abstinence-only sex education. Zero evidence behind it. A lot of evidence that suggests that it's actually much more harmful. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely on the same page about this. If I had the energy, I'd have a second. I think I said this to you before. I, I would have a second podcast about drugs and people's drug attitudes and drug experiences because <laughs> I, I find it fascinating. I think it's fascinating too. Yeah, I mean, it's it was something I studied a lot in my my master's of public health. Uh-huh. Um, like I, I took a number of classes on harm reduction, and because there's a, I think there's a lot of philosophical overlap between people who are strong proponents of sex education and people who are strong proponents of harm reduction measures around. Um, around drug use. Yeah. And I think, I think honestly, I mean, I think at the crux of harm reduction is empathy and, um, and understanding evidence (laughs) (laughs) that helps. Yeah. But just, just to, I think a lot of people have zero empathy for drug users. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, I I love meeting harm reductionists because they're often quite on my same page, even if we do different work. Yeah. Um, we spent way too much time talking about drugs. Can you talk about, (laughs) I have like five minutes left. Uh, can you talk about your linguistic precision card set? Oh yeah. My T and empathy cards. Yeah. yeah. I've got them right here actually. Um, so I, you can hear this unzipping. Um, I developed this deck of cards that I use in my T and empathy workshops and each deck of each card has a different feeling on it. And then, um, in, uh, you can see these on my Instagram. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> yeah. And so, so it has one main feeling and then three sort of adjacent feelings. Right. And the, the card that you're holding right now is passion. That's the main feeling. And the adjacent feelings are desire, devotion, and dedication. Yeah. So sometimes the, the way we use these cards in the workshop is you ask someone, um, usually like, are, were you wanting to feel more passion or were you wanting to feel more joy or something like that? Um, cause usually people are sharing things that are going shitty for them. <laughs> um, and I find that it's so powerful with empathy to get the exact word that describes your emotional experience. So it, for example, like passion might be close, but what you're really wanting to, was to, is to feel devotion like about your work or about your romantic life or something like that. Um, and I find that incredibly powerful. 
So I, I think about linguistic precision a lot because I, I think it's huge for empathy. I also think it's huge for getting the kind of sex that you want. Like it, being able to say, I want you to stimulate my clitoris in this specific way um, rather than just like go down on me or something. Like that's not very linguistically precise. There's yeah. so many different ways that that can go, go down, so uh, to speak. Oh, a lot of bad ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And people like such incredibly different things. So being able to have the language to really name exactly the thing that you want um, and also to have the person that you're telling it to, to have that same basis of shared vocabulary is mm -hmm. also really key. Um, but I, th I think that's absolutely foundational to building a dreamy sex life and foundational to having empathic, supportive relationships. Yeah, definitely. Um, in, in the workshop, you had us do an exercise where we talked about like what was feeling most present for us. And then we did, because you have kind of two sets, one which is like negative emotions and one which is positive emotions. Yeah, and yeah. I generally, I, I usually refer to them as like the challenging feelings and the yeah. enjoyable feelings. Yeah, I, I linguistic precision exactly. as I was saying and I was like this doesn't seem accurate but I'm just gonna go with it right and you know I mean I, I don't have a judgment about people yeah. calling them negative and positive feelings I think I just that's generally how I think about them uh -huh. um yeah and we do you want to yeah you, you feel free to share what what we did I, I interrupted you <laughs> um no I think I interrupted you whatever whatever <laughs> um it, it was just a really interesting exercise because we we went around in a circle and each person got their own like time where they got to talk about what was present for them and they got to have feedback from everyone in the group. And it wasn't, it wasn't like we were switching back and forth. It was like each person had their own time and their own space with it. And then at the, when we were done with each person, like being able to see all of the cars laid out in front of me, I was like, I have a lot of feelings, apparently. Absolutely. I think when we're, even for people who are really aware of their own feelings, when they're thinking about an emotional response to something, it's often just kind of a, a small handful of feelings. Mm -hmm. And when you can see all of these cards laid out, all of these kind of empathy guesses that people have made about what you're experiencing, it can be just really powerful to just see that laid out and to feel... I find that it feels validating when I do this exercise because it feels, it feels validating of something being mildly overwhelming or very present for me. It's like, oh, wow, I'm feeling all of these things. That's why this is so present for me. <laughs> That's why this is so intense. And the thing that I found really interesting that I really enjoyed was kind of like, like you, you call them empathy guesses, but it was more of like a negotiation. Like someone would say, were you feeling this and put down a card and then you could see the other words and be like, maybe not that, but this one, mm -hmm. which I found to be a really interesting experience. Yeah. It's sort of like empathy, uh, detective work yeah. or something like that, you know, with, with a, with kind of a soft edge. Yeah. Like it feels like there's kind of a caring edge to it. Um, but ha basically having a, a, a small group of people who are helping you get at what it is you're really feeling about something so you can have that clarity. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing that I learned at TN Empathy was a new word, compersion. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about what compersion is? Absolutely. So compersion is a neologism uh, that they use a lot in the polyamory community. So pe people who have consensual non-monogamy, it's one, one type of consensual non-monogamy. And it basically means joy for someone else's joy. Sometimes people say it's the opposite of jealousy. Mm. And I, I think it's particularly applicable when you have multiple sexual or romantic partners, because it's about, um, it's often used in context of feeling, feeling delight for your partner, having delight with someone else. But I think the word is really applicable to life in general, like feeling celebration for something that someone else is experiencing that you're not necessarily experiencing. It's something I think about fostering because mm -hmm. I genuinely want to feel joy for other people's victories, like particularly people who I care about. Yeah, definitely. I was really excited to learn that word because I was like, finally, I have a word for this thing, which is like, I love seeing my friends succeed and like mm -hmm. do really amazing things. And like, I am not a jealous person in general and like, I don't get it when people are like, how come they got the thing and I didn't? I'm like, that's awesome. You got the thing. Yeah. You know, it has, has nothing, um, no like negative connotations for me. So like, it's exciting to have a word 
for that feeling of like being excited for someone that you care about. Yeah, absolutely. I love that word as well. Like that's a huge value of mine to be able to have that kind of celebration for others. And, um, I, I think about in my relationship, that's something that brings us both a lot of joy when we we're monogamous, but when we have like a work victory or a friendship victory or some other victory in life to be able to be fully present for the other's joy is just so such fuel for, for the relationship and for the intimacy. Yeah, definitely. Um, as always, it has been a true delight. Thank you so much for spending time with me and talking to me. Oh, it is so my pleasure. I love talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. Check out the episode page for links to some of the stuff we talk about in these episodes and a link to that upcoming Tea and Empathy workshop in Brooklyn. If you haven't yet, take a listen to my other episode with Kate from this week where we talk about her career as a sex educator and a bunch of other stuff. I don't know. I don't remember. I'm tired. (laughs) Why are you still listening to this? Uh, You can find resources and more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. I hope I didn't say that already. Find Kate and all of her workshops, including Tea and Empathy, online at KateMcCombs.com. Check out Sex Geekdom at SexGeekdom.com. Find her on Twitter at KateCom and on Instagram at KateAnswers. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.